Hello, my name is Hoji Alimi, and I'm your host during this program. In this episode, we are going to discuss how prescription drugs are distributed and priced. We have two phenomenal guests who are joining me today on this program who will also help me to take a more in-depth look into how pharmaceutical products are generally priced and distributed. One of the most confusing markets, in my opinion, for consumers and patients alike is at the pharmacy counter. The current landscape for distribution and pricing of prescription drugs is highly complex. And in my experience, it's very difficult to find an expert who can, in layman terms, explain how generally medical devices and pharmaceutical products are made available in the market and secondarily priced. Middlemen such as uh, pharmacy benefit managers, or as they are known as PBMs, other distributors, formularies, Medicare and Medicaid, private insurers also play a significant role in this very complex system. During one of my podcast sessions a few months ago, I had interviewed the pharma executives from India where we discussed the pricing and availability of insulin to patients in India, where patients in India pay $2 to $5 for a single unit of insulin, while in comparison, patients in the U.S. have to scramble and pay prices closer to $100 or more per unit of advanced formulation of insulin therefore leaving many of the U.S. citizens rationing their life-saving insulin in some cases, and in some patients have passed away because they couldn't actually afford their insulin. So this is a chronic issue, not necessarily in the United States, but I'm sure it's a global issue. But we are in this episode, we are going to focus on the challenges of pricing drugs and their dis- distribution of prescription drugs in U.S., In my opinion, although innovation in medicine is moving at a fast pace, healthcare, however, in general, is migrating from a patient-focused system, meaning taking care of the sick, is migrating to a more return-on-investment philosophy, similar to that of a real estate investment or business. In parts of the United States, smaller physician practices right now are struggling to stay alive, and they are the target of acquisition by larger clinics and hospitals. Pharmacies are similarly also suffering from a similar business model condition where larger players are consolidating power and gaining more control of the market, and ultimately they will have a lion's share in distribution and pricing of medications and medical devices into the hospitals, clinics, and pharmacies. As I said before, today I'm joined with two phenomenal uh, guests. I'm really honored to have them here. Tony Sign, Mona Parsa, they are the executives of Legrand Corporation. Tony and Mona, welcome to the program. I'm truly appreciative and honored that you both have accepted my invitation to join this podcast. If you would be kind enough to introduce yourself, Tony, and, and then we'll pass uh, the mic to, to Mona as well. Thank you, Hoji. It's an honor to be here, and it's a very exciting topic I'm looking forward to digging into with you. 
So I'm a lawyer by training and started a company, LeGrand Corporation in 2016, focused on helping patients get the very best products at the best pricing. Really, again, focused on the lack of price transparency in healthcare and empowering doctors to help their patients get the medications they need at a, at a great price. Obviously, this is very near and dear to my heart because my mother has had these problems herself. In fact, she went in to get a cataract surgery a couple of years ago and had a magnificent experience in the doctor's office and even decided to get some premium lenses, but meaning that she was going to have the some just really amazing products that are going to help her see very well. And uh, got a prescription from her doctor, took it to a pharmacy, and it was going to cost her $649 for the products. Had she been aware, there were coupons or manufacturer coupons that were available to her that would have lowered it to under $150. So a really big difference. And there were alternative medicines that the doctor liked that didn't that he wasn't able to get to her that could have lowered it even down to $60. My father, on the other hand, who has bad insurance, uh, he would have paid $249 for the, the worst products on the market, even though much better products were available to him had he known about them or had his doctor had a way of, of managing them for as little as $35. So as we discussed, there's huge price variability and huge quality variability, and doctors are best able to manage that. They just don't have a tool today to help them do that, and, and that's what LeGrand Corporation does. So with that, I'll hand it to you, Mona. Thank you, Tony, and thank you, Hoji, for having me. I, this is you know, truly a pleasure. I am General Counsel and Vice President of Business Development here at LeGrand. My career first started at Allergan, then it took me into human rights, and then into finance and financial well-being, and now full circle back into health and eye care. And everything has always been tied together by a common thread, really, which is the protection of those rights that we all enjoy just by being human. And one of those rights is the right to health. And so every day I am thankful for the opportunity to be able to serve in that mission with Legrand as the vehicle. Thank, thank you both. So Tony, what is Legrand Corporation and what's its mission, the core mission in the market? So Legrand Corporation is an ocular health marketplace for doctors. Its core mission is to help doctors provide their patients the very best personalized products for them, both cost and experience. And so we manage on the doctor's behalf this price issue in the market, meaning we do the research to find the manufacturer programs, the government programs, the cash pay pricing that allows patients to get great products at an amazing price. And you're doing this primarily in the field of ophthalmology, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. So again, what we've, what we've created is a, an eye care marketplace. So we have the widest range of products, and then doctors are able to use that wide range to create specialized or personalized treatment protocols for their patients. So I've done a lot of research prior to this podcast in terms of prescription the pricing for different prescription drugs and also their availability in the market. And they don't necessarily go hand in hand. These are very complicated subjects that I'm hoping we can shed some light on. I, I don't think we can dive into significant depth, but at least we can shed some light on these topics. When a patient receives a prescription, 
and goes to the pharmacy to pick it up, neither the physician nor the patient are, are aware of, number one, the pricing of the drug, but more importantly and sadly, they're not aware of the candidate drugs that could be potentially equal or better that might be available. Is that correct in your experience, Tony? Yes, you've just, you've just hit at the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is there's 64,000 pharmacies around the country. I'll have a variety of prices for cash pay products. There's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of different insurance plans, which have a complete variety of what they pay and how much they pay for an individual product. And then there's hundreds, if not more, maybe thousands of pharmaceutical manufacturers who offer programs to patients called patient assistant programs to lower the cost of the drug products. And we have not found anyone else in ophthalmology and frankly in the broader markets that has aggregated all that data and made it usable to the doctor so the doctor can, can provide the patient the best pricing and products for them. That just amazes me, to be honest with you. <laughs> And I've been in, in the pharma medical device industry for, I, was, I want to say, close to 30 years, being CEOs of multiple companies. And the concept of pricing of critical and vital product and prescription drugs and their availability in, in the market, it, it just shocks me. It's unbelievable. And my research, as I was doing, the, doing it in advance to this uh, podcast program, I, I, I learned that as, for example, if I would drive through the town and if I need gasoline, I can pull into any gas station and I can put gas in my car. And if I drive another two miles, I would not expect to see fluctuations in gas prices, drastic fluctuations, meaning if I purchase gasoline at hypothetically $3, I will not find it at $17 two blocks down. But in the world of pharmaceutical, that's exactly what's happening. When I was researching this, there was actually an article that was peer-reviewed and published in American Medical Journal of Medicine, highlighted an example where a low-dose generic heart medication, and that's what I want to highlight, is a generic, it's not even branded, heart medication, was they found out that it was priced on the low side at $20.19 and then on the high side at $256.77. And then the high dose of the same generic drug was similarly was priced as low as 12, but the high side was at $397.58. And interestingly, the higher prices for these generic drugs were found in zip codes where there were higher rate of uninsured patients living in harsher economic hardships and conditions. So simply, they were not rich neighborhoods where they were paying the higher price. And what I'm realizing is, for example, if you go to a pharmacy and you purchase a prescription, the same pharmacy owned by the same company in the same city can drastically offer a different price. Is this a notion that you're familiar with, Tony, or is this brand new information to you as well? We, this is exactly the problem we identified. 
we need to research on the most common, one of the most common products for cataract surgery, which is a steroid. What it does is it helps the eye to, to stay stable um, after cataract surgery to not become inflamed. So it's very important and it's critical in, in the healing of the eye. It's called prednisone acetate. And this product, when it went generic, was $6 to the patient for cash in 2006. By 2016, it had risen to $106 on average. And in the research we did in 2018, we saw variability from $56 in the market as an average all the way to $550 at different pharmacies. And the reason for this, and you, you brought it up indirectly a minute ago, is individual pharmacies price their cash pay products at whatever they want to price them at. And these you might think that they're price gouging, but it's really not the case. What's happened is individual pharmacies are under such stringent financial burdens, the insurance companies, because the insurance companies reimburse so little these days for the products, that they're looking for any source of revenue to often to stay alive and to compete with the CVSs of the world. So that they increase the cash pay price, and it almost becomes a discount for a way that the big insurance companies are able to keep their pricing down at the expense of the often poor uninsured patient. So one of the things that I also realized in my research is that it, it, it absolutely validates what you just mentioned. And pharmacies right now are, in order to stay alive, some of the research that I saw is they need, on average, for every prescription to generate roughly a little bit over an $11 charge in order to maintain the overhead and everything else. And this is according to one of the peer-reviewed publications, an article I just found out. And But not necessarily every prescription is going to cost that much. Some are obviously much higher, some are equally much less. And one of the things that they are trying to use to offset that loss to also increase the charge, the cash charge to uninsured patients. So if you don't have insurance and you go in and you purchase a prescription, the pharmacy may charge you a higher price in order to make sure that they can actually self-sustain. And this whole system, it just seems so dysfunctional to me. I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, it's really a terrible system. And I'll just give you a good example. So when a manufacturer is trying to bring a new product to market, they have to negotiate with these big insurance companies. What they'll often do if it's the first product in the market is they'll negotiate exclusivity where they'll say to the, the insurance company, we'll give you a really great price if we're the only product in your tier one or in your tier one, in your top cheapest price to the patient. It assumes that all products are the same and they're really not. The best product for you may not ever be able to be tier one because your insurance company is almost practicing a kind of medicine by deciding that certain drugs are equal and, and therefore make one more available than another. And again, what, this goes back to one of the main premises of, of Legrand, which is individual doctors are best able to help match a patient to the best products for them. And so we've created a whole system to help that happen in a better way. So if you're a patient that, just like me, I, I needed some antibiotics a few weeks ago, it's not a big deal, I go to the pharmacy and I pick it up. 
But if you're a cancer patient or you're suffering from a heart disease and you rely on these very expensive drugs and you go to the pharmacy, what should that patient do or ask in order not to fall victim to these dysfunctional, radic uh, pricing of drugs all over the map? And more importantly, Tony, and, and then what can a patient ask in order to find out and inform their physician that there's a better or equal kind of a medication available at the pharmacy? Because I'm sure the physician wouldn't know that inform, information as well. Again, great question. The, the answer to the question is the physician has to guide the treatment. So the patient should ask the physician at the time of the they're getting the prescription whether there are, all, are alternative lower-cost medications. Just as an example, in ophthalmology, we find that many doctors rely on a compounded medication for cataract surgery because it's so much cheaper for the patient. So the average patient buying generic products would pay about $150, where they can often get a compound product sometimes for as little as $40. So if a patient simply asks the doctor what their alternatives are, that's the starting place. If a branded product is the best product for them, most of these have patient assistant programs. You could research and fill out the, the appropriate forms and get them, in many cases, for as little as nothing, for as little as no dollars. Because these companies have set up foundations to help patients who don't make enough money be able to get the treatments that they need. So about a year ago, Mona and Tony, I was actually on a business trip and I took Uber to go someplace and the Uber driver opened up discussion with me and he told me that he actually worked in the supply chain management for a pharmacy. And I told him about simple medicine and what I'm trying to do and we're talking more. And one of the things that he brought up and he was burned out completely and he said, I'm doing this as a interim job until I find out where I'm going to land. But one of the things that he highlighted to me, and it was it really a state in my mind, is that he said the way the distributors work or the PBMs, which you're going to talk about momentarily, they don't only supply a pharmacy with medication. They want to make sure that the medication is dispensed on time for revenue purposes, right? So the inventory is not sitting there. So one of the things that they actually control and monitor the pharmacy is that they wanna make sure that a patient doesn't miss refilling their medication. And if you're on a Lipitor, for example, this is what he was telling me, and I'd like to find out more about this, but if you're on Lipitor and you decide you're not refilling your Lipitor for whatever reason, and you haven't refilled it for two, three months, and if there are patients like that, that they come to the pharmacy and they don't continue refilling, although they have refill, then the PBMs or distributors or whoever is bringing the drug to the pharmacy, they're going to punish the pharmacy by giving them or don't give them the rebates or don't give them the discounts. They economically punish the pharmacy. Therefore, it pushes the pharmacy to become a slash pharmacist salesperson to contact the 
patients and say, hey, make sure you come pick up your uh, medication. In the past, I felt, wow, what, what a great service. They're doing this because they care about me. But when you go behind the curtain and you look at the practices of how medications are being distributed is out of this world. And is this something you have seen in your career? Have you experienced something like that? I haven't really seen. I've spent a time with hundreds of pharmacists now and hundreds, if not thousands, or actually thousands of ophthalmologists and optometrists. And the vast, mass, vast majority of them are in their careers because they really care about patients. They really want them to have the best eyesight possible. These are folks who dedicate themselves to helping each patient see a sunset a little bit more clearly every day. That I think is a just a remarkable view in the of the world. So, the, the majority of them really believe the drugs are there to help patients, and, and for for good reason. These are drugs that have been clinically proven, and a talented physicians order them. So, if they feel like they can help a patient get those products in a convenient way stay adherent to get a better outcome, they think that's the, the right thing to do. And I, I, think we have, that's, I think that's true. The problem may be closer to manufacturers not giving the doctor all the information or, or maybe doctors having a different view. I think it's difficult for a pharmacist to hold the pharmacist accountable if they know that a product's going to help a patient, not want to help that patient get it. So, Tony, I gave you a heads up prior to this episode that we would like to talk about pharmacy benefit managers and PBMs, how they were formed, is a concept that I was newly introduced to this year, actually. And the more I'm diving into this, I'm still learning about this. Do you want to take a first shot at describing what PBMs are, when they were formed, what's their role in distribution and pricing of the pharmaceutical product? Yeah, sure. So a prescription benefit manager is really a subset of an insurance plan. So an insurance plan is there to help guide a patient's medical journey, and that's largely in doctor's offices. And as drugs have become a bigger and bigger part of that, uh, the expertise to help a patient with the in-office procedure and the, tech, and the expertise needed for drugs are very different. And so specialist organizations popped up. They're called prescription benefit managers. And their, their job is to look at all the drugs that are available and create systems so that patients can get the prescription products they need through insurance. And they've become tremendously profitable over time. And largely because from about 2006 to about 2016, we saw just an incredible increase in drug pricing. So today they are the gatekeeper. They are the entity that looks at, say, ophthalmology and looks at all of the products being offered and determine when something's going to be $25 in first tier or, or maybe $100 in second tier or even need a prior authorization or a form you have to fill out to be able to get that product. So they're really powerful and that there's a lot of money at stake. And this is where they, if they're not careful, can begin almost exercising in medicine because they'll reimburse one product at, say, $25, and another product that may be better for that individual patient, maybe they'll reimburse it $100, $200, even if they're in the same class. So the way I, I understood the PPMs, I'm going to run this by you. You correct me if I have the right understanding, but long time ago, uh, for the sake of our listeners who are not uh, familiar with, with the industry and the landscape, drug companies used to manufacture their drugs. And then distributors used to purchase it from them. 
and then bring it into the retail pharmacies and make it available for purchase to patients. The PBMs came along, the first ones came out in late 1960s, and the whole concept behind PBMs were that if there is an entity that has cumulatively larger buying power, can potentially negotiate a better pricing from the pharmaceutical companies and hopefully pass those savings down to the patient. And that was the initial concept how PBMs started. But since then, PBMs have grown significantly and they're becoming extremely powerful. And they do exist in most practices. And I think the largest ones are CVS, there's Express Scripts, there's healthcare insurer Sigma, and the list goes on and on. But in, in reality, they are managing, based on the last numbers I saw, uh, they are covering more than 120 or 130 million patients in the United States. And the largest PBM in the U.S. has more revenue now than the largest pharmaceutical company in the U.S., and one of the criticisms of PBMs are that they started on the notion that they're going to go in, they're going to negotiate between pharmaceutical companies and pharmacies and try to pass on these discounts to the patients. But now they have themselves turned into these Goliath, very successful, large enterprises. And now they actually, because of that, they have significant control not only on making what product available to the market and, and pricing, but they can dictate what product can be approved for use, quote unquote, for those who are listeners who are familiar with the terminology uh, formularies, is a list of drugs that actually physicians can use or prescribe. PBMs actually have a control on that. And one of the things that was mind-blowing for me is that Lipitor, which is manufactured by Pfizer, I believe this was back in 2011, that the PBMs actually cut a deal with Pfizer or Pfizer cut a deal with them, even though Lipitor was coming off patent, for a period of time, PBMs received certain type of a deal from Pfizer or a discount, so the PBMs wouldn't allow the generic version of the Lipitor to be sold in the market. So these kind of power, focus of power financially and to be able to authorize prescriptions, it's, it, it, can, it can really create further challenges for quality of care that the patients can receive. And again, I, I, I don't know if you're seeing similar things in the field or your experiences, but the PBMs has been something of a new nature that I'm really trying to study and really understand and how they are influencing the landscape of distribution and pricing of drugs and medical devices. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I think you're exactly right. I think that PBMs were set up for the same good purposes that insurance plans were set up, which is, hey, if we can aggregate buying, we can lower the cost for everybody. And that, that's a noble pursuit. But over time, as you've said, 
the cost constraints that they find themselves under. And in, in many cases, unfortunately, the desire to get profit has made, made it more difficult for doctors to practice the, their trade and to give products, the best products to patients. So one of the things I routinely see is, is advertisements that say branded products and generic products are the same. And in many cases, that's just patently not true. So not only do you know PBMs sometimes keep too much of the money for themselves, but they also fail to see some of the very important differences between products. As an example, first-generation antibiotic that was dealt that was created to deal with bugs from say 2000 or 1990, and a product that was made for 2020 bugs. You can see that that just there's a there is a difference between a fifth-generation antibiotic and a first-generation antibiotic. But again, those kinds of differences are not always given the importance that they deserve, and that's why we you know Legrand built its whole business product and its whole business process on taking the very best clinicians and giving them tools to provide patients a very best care. And in some cases, that's, us- that's using their insurance or their PBM. In some cases, it's not. So I have heard this over and over again from patients that, hey, I, I was given a branded product and then my physician asked me or the pharmacist asked me to go on generic, but I'm not getting the same response when I'm taking the generic so is generic equal to branded product all the time, 100% in your view? Or are there certain cases where generic does perform differently? You know, Hoji, it's a great question. And again, I think it's one of the real information campaigns that have gone on in, in the, the drug world when someone says that a generic and a branded product are the same. Again, I want to go back to this prednisolone acetate, steroid, which helps an eye heal better in cataract surgery. Uh, Allergan made the branded product, which was called Predforte, and they spent tens of millions of dollars on the manufacturing. And when it went generic, a different maker made the product. They didn't spend nearly the money on manufacturing. And so one tends to be more stable and to provide a more consistent treatment over the several weeks. And one tends to spike early and then underdose later. Again, it makes perfect sense, right? Yes, both have the same ingredients, but they're not both put in the same treatment, which means that one's ingredients don't mix the same way and applied the same way. No, I think that, again, this is one of the major problems that we have. Even two generics that look identical because of manufacturing, because of so many other factors, can, can come out very differently. And, and that's not just an ophthalmology. I know several psychiatrists that have this problem where their patients are, are constantly going up, up on highs and lows because every time they go to the, doc, the, the pharmacy, they end up with a different kind of generic. So in, the, in defense of the generic manufacturers, these are very complicated topics that we are just slightly just touching on. But for the education of the general public that they're listening to this podcast, Usually in the eyes of the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, if you have a drug that has been patented and the patents currently, as it stands, you get 22 years of exclusivity in the market, meaning the pharma company, whether it's Pfizer or is a 10-man pharmaceutical company who put in millions and billions in developing that drug, they can take the 22 years of exclusivity or whatever is remained of it in the market 
to get the return back on the investment. And there are also orange book listings offered by FDA that can probably extend that exclusivity in the market. But the generic companies, then they get ready and they actually study all the major drugs in the market and they know what drugs are going to come off patent. So as long as they can take the active, the exact same active, and do a studies, equivalency studies to satisfy FDA to say, to say and state our drug, our active, is exactly the same as what the branded product is, then they get their approvals and then they line up like airplanes on a runway as soon as the patent is expired on the branded product, all the generic companies that come to the market and start marketing their product. But, but the notion of, and I have seen actually audited some of the generic uh, drug manufacturers, there are slight differences. They do use some things differently, as Tony said. Some of their processes may not be 100% the same. And again, the feedback I've been getting from a lot of patients over the years that they, either their colleagues or family or friends, that sometimes generic drugs don't work for them exactly how branded product does. But it, it, these are really amazing topics and how it's marketed by PBMs or by manufacturers or pharmacies and so on. Mona, in your opinion, based on your background, how do you think medicine should be practiced from your perspective? That's a great question. For me, with my background, like you said, I feel, view healthcare coming from that background in human rights. Health and human rights really, to me, simply goes hand in hand. When you can't really enjoy your intrinsic and inherent rights as a human fully without the right to health. And it just you can't enjoy the promise of life and pursuit of happiness without being as healthy as you can be. And with the right to health, recognizing that all people should enjoy affordable health care and health care that is accessible and appropriate, then really all of us in healthcare, regardless of the type of work it may be, a healthcare provider, an administrator, an investor, a business professional, all are human rights advocates and supporters just by the very nature of the effort to make an aspect of health accessible to each person. And I think it's here where we need to step back and look at the definition of the right to health which is one's attainment of their highest attainable level of health. So our individual highest level of health that we can achieve and can enjoy. It's not the right to be healthy because we're all made up differently biologically. So healthy cannot be guaranteed. Keeping this definition in mind of the right to health, then I believe that the most effective way in ensuring and promoting one's right to one's highest level of attainable health through the practice of care is for that practice to be person-centered. Just like you had said before, Hoji, the focus used to be on people getting sick, and now that focus has changed. We need to be focused on the person as opposed to focusing on the disease and its treatment, too. And really, in this way, care is delivered with that person's unique circumstances, their unique biology goals, their preferences in mind, instead of just managing disease when it happens. So in that way, we would be getting care that is in tune with us personally. Then that would allow us to achieve our best health because the care has been personal to us, which then means that right to health is achieved. And this result of better outcomes for the patient means not just that they're enjoying their best health, but it really also results in less of a strain on the health system that we're seeing today because of the focus on disease. 
We're seeing this result of chronic and terminal illnesses because people haven't been receiving the opportunity to receive health care that is optimal for them, that is personal to them. So I feel that when you make that shift to them as the focus, that is when we'll see big changes. And I, I think there's a uh, flip side of the coin. You can look at healthcare and see the impact of it on national security. Very bluntly, the weaker the community is, right, the more sick people you have, the more vulnerable the country becomes. You can see that with COVID-19, right, the spread of COVID-19, how vulnerable it makes certain countries. How quickly can you get it under control? How quickly can you actually treat patients and so on? It makes you a stronger nation, right? When you see in the United States that roughly around one-third of the country are either diabetic or they have pre-diabetes, pre-diabetes, meaning that at some point they will experience an onset of the disease, it will only make the country weaker and weaker because we are not fixing the problem we are treating a disease exactly how Mona you're describing it. And I think if you look at it from, at least from my humble view, from a smarter angle, look at how to make United States stronger, you wanna have very healthy citizens in this country. I think that's the way to achieve it. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, I just, yeah. I didn't expect the question what, at the end. <laughs> what I'm saying is, basically, do you agree with me that healthcare, the way it is constructed in a country, can either make your country stronger or weaker. The more healthier individuals you have in a country, the stronger your country is. Exact same thing we can see with the spread of COVID-19, how, how each country has a different policy of maintaining, controlling, and treating patients. The outcome is different, right? It makes your, you have a better leverage in the world if you can come out of it much more successful. Same thing with how you handle rates of cancer or diabetes and the list goes on and on. I just wanted to know if you share the same point of view with me or you have different point of view or opinion on that. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's not just about healing the sick. It's about really driving health and wellness not and not just focusing on, hey, let's let someone have government vision, meaning Let's get them to just good enough to drive with glasses. If you think about a person's productivity, the healthier they are, the more productive they're going to be in giving back to the community, whether that's working, whether that's raising children, whether that's participating in social good. So I think there's a direct connection between the strength of a healthcare system and in general health and wellness and the productivity of that country. And I think COVID's a good example of some countries do it better than others. So going back to Grand Corporation, Tonya or Mono, what is your collective vision? Where do you see your company in the next three, five years? We're really excited about making a very big difference for first eye care patients and then for a broader range of patients. We believe that next few years, we'll be able to capture a lot of the eye care patients' needs or meet a lot of the eye care patients' needs reducing the time that doctors actually spend writing prescriptions and increasing the compliance and adherence and really the experience of patients so that they're getting the the products they need, they're getting the instructions, they're getting digital reminders so that they can see better every day. We have a big focus on glaucoma 
But it's just really a labor of love because if patients aren't taking their drugs properly, they go blind and have to deal with all the, the consequences of losing all of your eyesight. So we view it as a real labor, as I said, a labor of love as we make sure that we've created a, an amazing system in eye care, we'll then grow that into the rest of the market, focus on things like drug-to-drug interactions. So when your pharmacy is prescribing to you, the, the doctors are getting access to information about the drugs you're on so that if the, you're taking a product that creates dry eye, for example, it may be a, a possible to get a different version of that product that doesn't have that particular side effect. There, there's a lot of room in healthcare especially in drugs, to more deeply involve the doctors and through through that incredible clinical attribute, give patients much better outcomes and experiences. So I have another question from Mona, and then Tony, you can answer that too. I'm also CEO and chairman of a company here, so I fully sympathize and I fully understand how difficult it is to start a company is like taking a baby and slowly growing it into the market. There are lots of challenges associated with that. There are lots of sleepless nights. You're gonna get up at two in the morning worrying about things, not only from payroll, but clinical trials and patient outcomes and things of that sort. What truly drives you and Mona to push this company forward? It's not an easy task to start a healthcare company. So it, it does require a lot of stamina and a lot of conviction. So I want to know where that comes from for you, Tony, and then secondarily for Mona. Thanks. As you look at the healthcare market, as you've described it, and really the the prescription market, as as we've discussed today, it just doesn't have the technology infrastructure necessary to help patients get the experience and outcomes they deserve. I'm really excited about helping every single patient have a better experience use their products in a more comprehensive way, and ultimately get better outcomes. And again, to me, that means that we're helping thousands of people, hundreds, tens of thousands, soon hundreds of thousands, see sunsets better, spend more time with their grandchildren, and enjoy all of the visual experiences that are so key to living a healthy and happy life. And Mona, what drives you? It's very similar to Tony, which is really the mission of the company is for just helping us to be the greatest us, to be the greatest that we can be. And just like what I was saying before, much of my work is centered on rights that we all should enjoy just by being human. And with the right to health specifically, that's just not the right to things like safe drinking water and housing and access to nutritious food. The the right to health goes far beyond that. It is includes things like affordable health care, timely health care, the right to appropriate health care. So it's these basic factors that affect health in addition to these other determinants of health that we all have the right to. And it's that right to health that must be guaranteed, must be protected no matter what. And so this is my motivation. I've always been strongly driven by the protection of human rights. And in my role at Legrand, I'm just very much fueled by that mission. So if I'm a patient or I'm a doctor and I want to learn more about your company, where do I go? Where do I get more information? It's a great question. The best way to learn more about us is to go to our website, which is www.legrandrx.com. That's L-E-G-R-A-N-D-E-R-X.com. And that's a good start. And there's a support number there. Or they can actually call my cell phone at 949-338-7926. Fantastic. I'll, I'll send them to the right place. 
One, one last question I have is Legrand, is it going to stay in the U.S. or are you guys thinking about going global at some point? That's a good question. I think you can never say never. So we don't know where, where, where the road will go. But obviously, if we can help, the more people that we can help, the better. So I don't want to ever say that we're going to put limits on ourselves. I, I just don't have an answer. But would that be the case if we had the opportunity? I don't see why not. I want to thank you both of you guys for participating on this program. It, this is a program that I think is of high value to a lot of my audience and a lot of people that care about healthcare. So thank you both and really appreciate all your cooperation and I look forward to working with you in the future. Thank you for tuning into Simple Medicine's podcast, where we discuss today's healthcare trends with the goal of improving consumer, business executive, and physician decision making. For more information, please log on to simplemedicines.com to further our discussion and build a comprehensive community of experts and patients. Thank you.